one of the things that kava does is reveal truths. What I mean by that is because it is such an important ritual food in Oceania, it's a really rich site to understand what's going on, whether that's at a community level, uh, at an individual level, um, or even in a larger scale also. And one of the things that uh, Tonga is currently uh, dealing with and recovering from is um, the tsunami, which I imagine most uh, heard about, which hit at the end of uh, last year, December 2021. Uh, and it was stated that 80% of the population in the Kingdom of Tonga was impacted in, in some way, uh, in one form or another. Uh, if it wasn't direct, then maybe through indirect um, ash or access to water was another major thing going on too. On top of uh, physical repercussions, psychological you know, repercussions as well, and you know, one of the reports I was reading is some of the concerns around emotional well-being, uh, and then also observing kind of the global aid efforts, uh, both from public sectors such as a state, like a nation, or, or even private sectors such as corporate organizations, or, or even individuals themselves trying to administer some type of aid in, in regards to this recent cataclysm. But I wanted to put this into a larger context of uh, climate crisis and, and even an economic crisis as well, because, you know, Tonga is, is dealing with this right now, but it hasn't necessarily fully recovered from any of the very recent challenges that have hit not just Tonga, but, but the region. One of the things that you know, I've been mindful of is the prices of kava, and that's usually correlating with a lot of different factors, okay? And one of those is, one of the major ones is climate. You know, in 2020, there was Cyclone Yasa, which hit both Vanuatu and Fiji. In 2020, there was also the Cyclone Herald uh, that hit Tonga, um, Solomon's, uh, Vanuatu and Fiji. And I have some relations in Tonga that are still kind of rebuilding from Herald uh, in 2020. And then if we go back a couple years from there, in 2018, Cyclone Gita hit. And that was the most significant uh, cyclone to hit Tonga on modern record. Now the volcano it isn't going to be as directly correlated as the cyclones and these larger storms with rising uh, you know, uh, sea levels and, and also uh, temperatures. But to put it in the context of these other natural uh, disasters. If we go back further still though, there was Cyclone Winston in 2016 and I remember that uh, after the first year of kind of my keeping track of, of numbers and like major spike in cover prices hits. You know as far as it wasn't coming back down after that. Um, and then the year before that in 2015, uh, Fiji was suffering from a drought and had a major farming impact. Uh, go back to 2014 um, and there was the drought in Tonga. And there's currently drought warnings now for, for Tonga, particularly in the Niwas. And so, you know, again, all these different things are, are related in this larger context of climate crisis. That's just going back eight years, okay? So within not even a decade, but almost a decade, we can see these constant issues that have existed. And so for me, when I look at the, the current issues right now in recovery in, in Tonga, it's also linked to kind of over the last eight years, there have been major climate catastrophes. You know, one of the things that that impacts is rainfall, right? Sea temperature uh, and storms, uh, the pH uh, level of water and soil, which is hugely uh, important for, for planting and harvesting, right? And so pH is referring to how acidic or alkaline 
um, the soil or the water is. You know, that's all impacting. So when we look at access and issues to kava, you know, again, thinking about kava as a revelator of, of conditions. And so the prices and access to kava is one way of looking at how these other issues environmentally are impacting um, the region and, and a people. You know, and the other thing with, you know, the, the current aid efforts, it's, it's always interesting, right? Because, you know, the idea about looking out for somebody else, whether it's mutual aid um, or, or what have you, is that ethically, I think it's about looking out for other people, right? And, you know, people who are in need, um, whether that's locally or globally. Yet, aid is also very political. And so with the recent things, it's been interesting to see how countries have responded to Tonga and why they're responding, you know, um, with, you know, the, the mantra of wanting to help out. But also, I feel like there's a lot of political posturing, right? They want to minimize the impact of other countries. So in the case of Tonga, there's also this massive economic crisis on top of the ecological one, which is the debt. Um, and I would say in the popular consciousness, you know, the, the, the Chinese debt is well known. However, even though the Chinese debt is the largest in Tonga, it only constitutes 60% of all, all the debt in the Kingdom of Tonga. And so there's a whole other, almost half, that is to other places, which escape any kind of uh, visibility with the hyper-focus on China, where you have all these other so-called Western nations, um, Australia, New Zealand, US, that Tonga is also in debt to. The Chinese debt particularly has intensified um, since the 2006 uprising in Nukualofa, which was reflecting a political crisis. And the, you know, the aftermath of those 2006 uprisings were these massive loans taken out in 2008, 2010 to rebuild uh, parts of, of the capital city. And it's part of what's been referred to as the debt trap diplomacy, uh, where you know, Tonga joins the World Trade Organization in 2007, which uh, intensifies neoliberal capitalism. And so these are directly correlated with the massive issues that we see today. And Tonga, since you know, probably the late 20th century, oh, let's say 1970s, give or take, roughly, right, begins to shift into a remittance-based economy, right, where the majority of, you know, the GDP of the nation is from people sending money back to Tonga. Uh, however, 2008, because of the economic crisis in the U.S., uh, there was a decline, right, because of the recession that took place in 2008 in the U.S., the remittances took a hit there as well. So you can see how that's correlated with taking all, all these loans in 2008, 2010 as well. So again, post-crisis, there's always this kind of move to quote-unquote help, but what's the reasons why people do it? Again, just a, a little bit of an intro of thinking, uh, while, while I am talking about GABA in these, you know, the last episode and this one, you know, I just want to position it within a current crisis and also within the larger uh, crisis, whether it's political, economic, um, or environmental, that Tonga and, and, and also the region has been dealing with and confronting for, for quite a bit of time. So keep that in mind as, we, you know, as I'm discussing Kava, I like to think about Kava as how is it revealing these other, using Kava as, as one uh, way of kind of exploring a variety of other issues that are going on locally and globally. Why? With Arcia Tecun.
Uh, welcome to part two on Kava and just wanted to build off of uh, what I previously talked about and thinking about some of the things that are coming or changing in regards to how we access Kava today. So uh, one of the things that I wanted to point to in this is that, you know, I mentioned the Kava Codex and on one hand it's really important that we do have regulations for safe kava consumption because there's a lot of shady stuff going out there especially if you're in the communities if you're not in the communities this may be less of an issue but that is an issue itself right why is it an issue in the communities and not outside of that and part of that has to do with the role of commodification and the process of commodification now if you're buying kava with money it's a commodity it's as simple as that and it has been a commodity for a while now however its intensification as a commercial product is part of the pressures of what's uh, changing a lot of the dynamics. And what I would argue is um, increasingly setting up a position to gentrify Kava as far as who is going to end up benefiting the most from its commercialization. Now, there are Pacific Islanders overseas and locally who are engaged in the commercialization of Kava and will receive some of the benefits from, but overall, when we think about who is selling Kava the most, who's purchasing it, the Kava bars around the United States, for example, the majority are not owned by um, Pacific Islanders. In Utah, there are a couple. So definitely, I think, always try to support people where it comes from. I think that's uh, the ethical thing to do and important thing to do. But as far as buying Kava and stuff online, it's really hard to find direct access to farmers. And so you're often dealing with that middle person. Uh, and in many cases, increasingly, especially as far as who is up to date with regulations, are we're dealing with foreigners, meaning not locals. And this is one of the ways in which regulation can gentrify. Now, it's important to regulate for safety, but if we look at the traditional practices and uses, there was not a need to regulate until a new context of uh, capitalism, right, which creates, you know, looking at some of the theory around capital enclosure, right, it closes off what was once available to a particular group of people in a commons, if you will, through privatization. And the people who have the best access to uh, the type of testing that's required to be up to date with the regulations are, at least in my experience and research, not the people that I mostly have engaged Kava with, right? Um, buying Kava in the community is often not marked or labeled, and for the most part, it's not a huge issue if you know where you're getting your Kava from. In many cases, at least, you know, when I was uh, first introduced to Kava, it was coming from family to family, right? So. One family member was selling kava that was brought sent to them by their family member. You you know the, the, the chain of distribution. That gets a little bit more complicated once you move outside of kind of a kinship tie and you're purchasing from people who you may not have kind of more immediate kind of kinship responsibilities or accountability to. And so this is, again, the, the larger the world gets and within global capital and commercialization, you have more and more bureaucracy. Right now, bureaucracy is when you, you know, fragment things as it gets bigger and bigger. So if you ever think about having to call someone for customer service and having to push a number for here, push a number for there, that's bureaucracy. You're breaking it up in all these different places, and so you have one person making it, one person uh, producing it, one person packaging, another person uh, distributing it, another person, you know, then distributing it from there. That's bureaucracy, right? And that's part of what is produced in our current global economic system. And so I did want to kind of mention this stuff because I think it's important to 
uh, as much as is possible as consumers support local people who have ancestrally inherited and steward this plant and and, and then in other cases we're now uh, selling it even as a commercial product so I, I do my best to try and find um, people who have links and ethical links and ties to Oceania and, and purchasing kava and consuming kava. You know one of those things that and I'm just putting this out there just so people are aware is this thing called noble kava uh, which you might find online increasingly is going to be there. It's one of the things that's going to be regulated for. And that's referring to what kind of kava you have. And for the most part, it means it's not tunde kava, which is a particular kind of variety of kava. Now, remember, there's over 100 types of kava. There's heaps of different varieties and cultivars. Uh, and that's one thing that I imagine will change. You know, growing up uh, around the kava community, and once I entered into the kava community as a teenager and been in that for almost two decades now, it's not usually how people think about it, right? They're just kava is kava, full stop. But, you know, as I became more of a kava nerd, I became aware of, oh, there's all these different varieties. Uh, and my first trip to Doma back, you know, over a decade ago, um, I, you know, became aware that there's seven different varieties alone that grow in Tonga. And the three kind of prominent ones are, you know, kavaleka, kavakula, and kavahina, each of which have different levels of kavalactone. Now, kavalactone is the, the, the compound, the chemical compound that kava has that produces its that's that's psychoactive meaning that it, it has an effect on the nervous system uh, and in particular it's um, an antidepressant and or sedative or sedative um, uh, property now there are six types of kava lactones that are within kava and so I'm not going to go into too many details into that because while it can be interesting to get into the chemistry I'm interested in kind of everyday interactions, and most people, in my experience, are not um, asking uh, that, at least within the Pacific communities that I work with and I'm in relation with, they're not saying, hey, you know, what's the percentage of this or that? Now, it is important to be aware of, however, though, uh, you want to have a, enough of a percentage of kava lactone for it to be uh, considered a, a decent or good kava, right? And I would say we're looking at maybe around 7-8% is, you know, or, or above. Um, is looking at a good, decent quality kava. Now, the more percentage doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be stronger or better either necessarily. There's a lot of things that go into play with that. But um, just, you know, be aware of kava lactone. Now, when I was in, in Tonga uh, about a decade ago, uh, one of the Ministry of Agricultural Farms in Vavau, you know, with these two different varieties, kavahina was the fastest growing and the smallest plant itself. Uh, and then you have Kabakula, which is kind of medium, and then Kabaleka, which is the largest plant. It was taller than, not that super tall, but it was taller than me and uh, has the highest level of Kabalactones, meaning the, the most potent variety. So even in that case, right? Uh, and so when I talked to this farmer, he was telling me that what they do is that's why they, they'll blend it, right? So they have these two different Kava varieties that they, they, that they particularly grew, and they would blend them together because this one had, was maybe more potent and stronger, but this one grew faster, and so it was very common to have a blend, right? And that's very common, I think, in many uh, places, in, you know, at least in the, what we might call the Western, uh, quote-unquote, Polynesian part of, the, of Oceania. But it is important to kind of be uh, aware of that kind of growing importance of knowing what kind of kava you're having, because I think increasingly, just again, like with nutrition facts or whatever, that's initially going to come up. If you're buying kava from Vanuatu, you're already going to see heaps of different kinds from, you know, Borongu, uh, Borongoru, Melo Melo, Palalasul, and so on and so forth. 
Um, you know, in, in Fiji, they do also kind of distinguish waka, um, in Tongan it's aka, the, um, the, the lateral roots, um, and only drinking that versus lawana, which is kind of the base, the basal stump, which also has kavalactones, but isn't as, as strong, doesn't have as much as the, the lateral roots. And so they will distinguish that. So that's another thing you might see if you're buying stuff from, let's say, like Wakamavu, uh, which is based uh, here in Aotearoa. You know, he sells a variety of different kavas. Sai, he's got, you know, on there if you want to buy Lawena or Waka, right? So he's referring to different parts of the kava plant. Um, and so that's something that we're increasingly going to see. Now, if you're Itaoke, if you're a Fijian, you already are aware of that. But outside of that, you're going to see more and more of that. Now, amongst Tongans, it's still kava for the most part. But that's why I'm bringing it up. I think eventually you might be thinking of, you know, the different parts of the plant, uh, of the roots, that is, right? Because only the underground stuff. Um, but maybe even the cultivar type as well, which has already been the case, um, like in Vanuatu, for example. And, um, you know, again, with the Kabbalactone, the other thing that you might see is, I see it more here, again, with Wakamavu, uh, and also the New Zealand Kava Society, they might um, post up the the chemotype. And, and this is, once Kava has been kind of, had a thorough kind of chemical breakdown uh, test, there'll be a six-digit number and that six-digit number refers to the six different types of cavalactones. And each one has, you know, and this is where it gets, you know, uh, it hasn't, I, I would say that, you know, most people in the community aren't thinking like this in my experience. I still personally, I mean, I look at it, but it's not always what I'm thinking of also. But for, you know, ethnobotanists like uh, Vincent LeBeau and, and, and others who are looking, they want to know the chemotype because you want to see the ratio of these different types of carbolactones because they all have different parts of effects and different ratios will have different effects. Now that's not the only thing that comes into the effects of kava, but again, the main point in this is that the more that kava is regulated, the more that we need to have conscious consumers of thinking about there's a lot of different types of kava and each different type has a different chemotype, right? It has a different ratio of the, the chemical compounds of carbolactones, which have an impact into the effects, the effect, the affect that you get from drinking kava, but also the farmer is going to have a big, you know, how are they farming it, what are the conditions, you know, how was it cultivated. For me, more than anything, I'm interested in a well-processed kava because I'm buying it that's not fresh. I mean, I'm keen to be able to get fresh kava root, but um, for the most part, 99% of what I'm drinking is uh, dried so for me, my the most important thing to me is that it's been dried properly, that it has a, you know, it's within regulation of the moisture content. And again, there's a couple places here that do it in Alternative New Zealand. In the States, I have to have a closer look. There might be some vendors that are, are pointing that out or not. I'm not sure. But that I, to me, that's probably the most important thing at the moment is, especially considering the way things are dried, um, if you're doing a natural drying process, that's not necessarily an issue. However, if you're the one that's drying it, and if it rains or if it gets wet, that means that then when you continue to dry it, you can still fully dry it, but that does impact the taste uh, of the kava, and, and I'm to the point where I can taste that. <laughs> if it's been dried uh, effectively, not only will it last longer, it's also not going to develop mold, but it's also going to taste nicer, at least in my experience. I'll, I will name list the, the kava-lacto names uh, just so you're aware, that's what's being talked about. I'm not going to go into the details of these ones. So you have these six different cavalactones. You have uh, kavahin, you have yangonin, you have methistican, 
dimethoxyangonin, you have dihydromethistigin, and you also have dihydrocavaine. And you want to look at the ratio of those different cavalactones, and in particular with that chemotype number, you know, the order of those, there's people that, you know, will, will say, hey, if these first three numbers are ordered in the first three slots, then that's going to be nice for this particular effect or maybe more uh, desirable kava in a certain sense, right? And there's different effects, right? There's some that are more sedative uh, and there's some that are more conducive to kind of sociability, all of which still are, are antidepressants, kind of generally speaking, or soporifics, meaning kind of, you know, mild anesthetic, um, sleep-inducing to some degree. Kind of global capitalism, colonial capitalism, racial capitalism, 
those terms uh, are there because they they it organizes the world in particular ways. If you think about today, the echoes of the so-called first, second, and third world still are around, right? And it's referring to a particular hierarchy of power around uh, racial and economic terms around the world. And so a lot of the places that produce Kaaba are in the so-called third world brown and black nations. And so there's a power dynamic that already is at play there. And once it enters into the consumer market and when we have more consumers that are not from that region, uh, not from those communities, there's a different consumer power there as well. Now this also exists with people who might be from Oceania but who now live overseas and maybe have a greater consumer power. That was another thing that I've noticed in my research as well throughout the years is that in many cases, particularly in archipelagos away from the highly populated Tomatapu, people aren't drinking kava as much or are watering it down more uh, because of less access. And it's literally coming from there. Uh, and in many cases, in the case of Tongan kava, most of the Tongan kava, I would argue, is still being consumed by uh, Tongans. Although there are non-Tongans now consuming some Tongan kava as well. That's something to keep in mind, that even within communities, overseas communities are oftentimes consuming at a higher volume because they have a different kind of consumer power because they're in the U.S. or here in New Zealand or in Australia. And so that has an impact uh, on this. And so part of what I'm saying is just kind of to increase awareness of being mindful of those things as we consume and partake of kava. It's like, where is it coming from? How is it impacting people and relations and also uh, the ecology? I mean, you know, if you weren't interested in thinking about the climate crisis before, you should absolutely be aware of the climate crisis if you're somebody who likes kava. Kava is a, a very important plant in the region, and uh, it has, the prices have skyrocketed over the last uh, six years in particular, and there are many reasons for this, but the, the cyclones, uh, the droughts that have hit the la in the last decade have been absolutely impactful. Uh, kava takes at least three years to reach its full kind of kava lactone maturity. People like to grow it more than that because you get more roots and there's also this kind of cultural sense of the older it is it has more mana. Also, it's really hard to find anything that is not being harvested as soon as it can. Now you could harvest it earlier. There's some places that I've heard that and seen that they harvested it, you know, maybe even 18 months or two years. Once it gets to the size that you can harvest it, but you get less roots, um, it does, has a lower cavalactone content as well. And so the climate crisis is absolutely um, going to have a huge impact on not just cava prices, but cava access. Um, it's commodification and who's consuming it. I think it's already in, right? And, and I bring this up too, being somebody who, you know, I grew up, you know, uh, and still to this day, when people think of chocolate, they don't think of my ancestors, usually. Uh, that awareness is growing, thankfully, but I mean, even growing up, you know, everyone thinks of, you know, the Belgian chocolate, and it's not even from there, uh, you know, and then you think about the atrocious ways in which um, cacao is harvested and produced um, in very exploitative ways in parts of the continent of Africa and in Latin America, you know, it's like, what the heck happened, you know, it, you know, it came from, you know, uh, the Americas and then, you know, became better known elsewhere. Now, that hasn't happened with Kava. Um, it's still known as something from Oceania. Uh, it's still, in many cases, grounded and rooted in, in communities uh, overseas and locally. However, I do see it slipping uh, in the same way that chocolate has, uh, which is something that I have 
these close ties with it, as well as a lot of other foods have been gentrified. And what I mean by gentrified is that when you have wealthier or, or even people who may not be wealthy but have a greater consumer power because of where they live in the world, are able to access things uh, in ways that remove it from its local access. And that's already happening with, with Kava, but it has yet to fully take place. Here's my kind of humble hope that uh, increasing awareness and consciousness of uh, these important ritual foods, uh, people are hopefully, if you know, if, if you're a kava consumer, producer, uh, distributor, seller, or you know, thinking about these things, not only for the longevity and the safety of kava, but also to to uphold its manna, its 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 prestige, its honor at the plant itself and even the people. You know, when I think about you know the the, the chiefly kind of elite ceremonies of kava. Um, and the Talmafakaba, the, the regal ceremony, the paramount chiefly ceremony in the context of Tonga, you know, to bring out a fresh green kava root. I mean, that's to me, the, that's the chiefly standard, right? That's why I always like, if I can get green kava, that's, that's what I want. I want the fresh stuff because that's what I see uh, in these ceremonies. And they're cutting the, the, the roots uh, as part of the ceremony and preparing it. And, uh, you know, back in the day it was chewed. Um, now it's crushed with a, you know, kind of with rocks and stones. Uh, and there's a lot of symbolism and metaphors tied to the meaning of that. And one of those is, you know, I mentioned Aho Eitu in the first part of this. And part of the story of Aho Eitu is when he goes up to the heavens to find his father, he is killed and eaten by his uh, siblings who are full deities. And, you know, Aho Eitu is this demigod who's part mortal. However, his siblings are commanded to uh, regurgitate him into a kumete, a, a kava bowl, and he is then resuscitated, resurrected out of that. And so there's direct symbolism to the origin of this uh, ancient chief in Tonga uh, when the kava root is being pounded and crushed, the root itself, right? It's literally the dismemberment of Ahoetu's body and then being fused with water as he's being revived and enlivened. And so in a, in a way... Where at least I'm always mindful of this when I'm drinking kava, right? Is this is an ancestral sacrament, a sacrament of the ancestor that you are imbibing um, in connection uh, with. And so, in the song that I sang at the end of the first part of, of this kava series, Ahoetu is mentioned in there for that reason. And there's many other meanings and symbolisms tied to the way kava is prepared in these ceremonies, but the point for me is like, you know, as conscious consumers, let's go for the chiefly standard, you know. Forget about the gold and the platinum. Let's get the chiefly standard. Uphold the mana of kava. Uh, make sure it's being produced in an ethical way, that it's being purchased in an ethical way that upholds the mana of the farmers as well. Um, and that also is mindful of our ecological crisis. Um, and, uh, you know, we have to uphold the mana of this earth, the, the potency and power of, of our planet that we share. And so... That's something that I'm hoping. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be possible within our current global economic system. Uh, but if we can push and pull and find cracks to uh, uphold that and, and make sure that it stays as much as possible in the hands of, of those who have inherited it. You know, as a non-Tongan for me, this is one of the ways in which I maintain good relations with the community is to, in my view, is to uphold their mana, their stories, their um, processes. As someone who has learned from uh, and everything I, I know comes from uh, the Oceania communities, you know, primarily uh, Kakai Tonga, uh, but also Itaukei, people, you know, in, uh, Fijians and uh, Kanaka Hawaii, people from Hawaii and, 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 and from across Oceania. So all my knowledge comes 
from those peoples and the and these places. And so this is um, to try to uphold those things. And to me, I see it directly related to all these other uh, ritual foods and important foods around the world too. And what's already happened, like we're fighting to get chocolate back. We're trying to fight to get cacao, cacao to be uh, remembered as coming from uh, Mesoamerican peoples, uh, Maya peoples, Winak peoples, and reinstating its ritual function and purpose um, that it's had. Uh, and so for me, it is important when I see stuff like Kaaba with, you know, to make sure that it's a, well, we're at a place where we can still hold on to that and uphold that, but it is slipping away. It's being ripped away, rather, with the, the forces uh, of the world. But to end this one, I'll, I'll leave you with another song. And again, these songs are, are gifts uh, back to uh, the community. And I've been sitting on these songs for years, but felt that, you know, finally it's time to, to share them kind of more publicly. And again, these are songs that I've composed with help to get the tongan right and uh, the language right and uh, inspired by the pentatonic scale and something that I like to, to be able to sing when I, when I drink kava to uphold the mana of kava and the people who have shared it with me and, and where it comes from. And so this one is uh, inspired by uh, Fai Fai Malie, who was an uh, old woman who went to Bolotu, the afterworld, the spirit world, metaphysical realm that is tied across underworld, sky realm, and earthly realm. It's, a, it's a, all those things and more. It's a, the place in the west uh, of Tonga, and you know, Fai Fai Marie goes, goes there and uh, drinks kava with Hikuleno, the, the principal deity um, in, in Tongan cosmogony, um, the elder sister uh, to Tangaloa, a female-bodied, masculine person that, you know, has these multiple gendered expressions as well and has kind of been pushed out with um, the modern uh, adoption of patriarchal religion. Uh, and so for me, it's to remember those things. I, I do want to mention uh, Ulisse uh, Funaki uh, and his um, uh, podcast on Tongan legends, which you can find on YouTube, and I think that you can find the audio versions as well. And they, I'm not going to go into too much detail because uh, Ulisse does a good job, along with Cameron, to, to get into those stories. And so go check them out for sure if you're interested in that stuff. A lot more detail, I'll leave it to them. Uh, on Fai Fai Malie, but this story is kind of in honor of her. This this godly woman, actually, this chiefly woman who uh, outdrinks Hikuleo in Pulotu, saving these other earthly gods and are able then to return uh, home. And so the, the, the song is about honoring her and remembering that she went to Pulotu and saying, excuse me, Hikuleo, because the tapu in this case goes to Fai Fai Malie for being able to do this. And again, at the end, is about kind of asking to acknowledge the, the mana, um, the potency, the honor, the prestige, the authority, and the tapu, the protections, the setting apart of, uh, of kawa. Malo apito for listening. Thanks for listening. Hopefully these two parts make some sense. You know, hopefully you'll be able to get some things out of that. And even if you're not a kava drinker or interested in kava, I hope that you get something out of it. And thinking about ritual foods, thinking about story, thinking about meanings, and how they're continuously and contemporarily relevant to us today. Uh, in it with a variety of issues. Malo as well to Cecilia Taukapo who really helped me uh, um, so the Tongan is uh, more correct thanks to her. Uh, Alright, till the next one. Um, thanks again. Simbalak Matios. Fai Fai Mali
mai kate ki matolu na aketa mafakava i pulotu tulo atu hikule o Kai tapuang e pea mo fai malie O kumana faka o tua Pea mo fafine Faka tapu e kawa koe ni